Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful that we can come into your presence to hear from you as you long to speak to us. Lord, remove any distraction. Lord, remove even the things that are in our hearts that are taking our minds and hearts away from you so that we might sit at your feet and receive your life-giving words that we might, as we leave this place, leave fed, encouraged, committed to living as your people. In Christ's name, amen. We are continuing our series in the book of Psalms, um, and tonight we're looking at Psalm 98, and looking at a psalm that often is overlooked. I don't know uh, when last time you heard a sermon on Psalm 98, but it's an important one nonetheless, and reminds us that sometimes these overlooked psalms, these marginalized ones, have a lot to say to us. In fact, the entire book of Psalms play an important role in, in really shaping our faith, in helping us to understand the gospel in deeper ways, and helping us to have words and categories to understand God better, but to live out our faith better as well. So I want to invite you in the next, uh, this summer actually, as we dive into the book of Psalm, uh, Psalms to come with an open heart and to see how, can, how God will speak to you in fresh ways to apply these truths into your hearts and help you to grow in your understanding of who he is and the truth that we will be uh, unpacking in our time together. Uh, just a quick note, Glenn and the Israel team uh, left yesterday, so please pray for them. Uh, as they will be uh, touring Israel for, I think, about 10 days or so. So please uh, keep them in prayer that they would be safe, that they would have uh, a fun, a fun time out there, and that uh, they would return energized uh, to, to serve this congregation. Okay? All right. Earlier this week, I was at Starbucks uh, preparing for the sermon. And, uh, you know, Starbucks plays... Uh, uh, lot of songs that I don't know, uh, that I don't recognize. I uh, grew up in a fundamental church uh, and was converted back in 1989, and I was told that secular music is bad. So I gave up music in 1989. And so uh, anything after 1989, I don't know. I don't recognize. And therefore, it has no, like, heart pull. In my, in, you know what I mean? Like, I can't get with it, but Anything before 1989, boy, you better watch out. 
And uh, as I was preparing this sermon, Michael Jackson was playing. And all of a sudden, I was transported immediately back to eighth grade. I was back in Luther Jackson in that dark middle school dance. Yes, you feel me, girl. And uh, reliving the good old careless days when girls had eight-inch bangs. You remember those days? Remember those days? And every dude had a mullet? I mean, it was great. Uh, side note, I've always wanted a mullet, but my uh, mom, who had better fashion sense, basically said no. Uh, if you come home with one of those things, then uh, you'll be kicked out of the house. So praise God for her. I don't have any pictures, at least that, that I know of, that you could use to blackmail me. But uh, man, for five minutes or so, I was in a different place, really just reliving those earlier years, friends and careless days. And after the song ended, I found myself back in Starbucks having to write the sermon. And I thought, man, what a great introduction. Because songs are powerful. Amen? Songs are powerful. And they impact us in ways that I don't think we're even fully aware of. Music not only impacts our mood, but even our brains. And science has confirmed this. In her book, The Power of Music, Elena Haynes speaks on music therapy, and she writes the following. She says, scientists have found that music stimulates more parts of the brain than any other human function. Think about that. And I thought words were powerful. But once you wed words to catchy tunes, then they take on a a whole new meaning and can impact us in ways that we're not even aware of. The God who formed us and gifted us the gift of music certainly knows the powerful influence of music. And that's why the Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, what we do up until this point in worship service is not warm up. We're not simply killing time so that we would somehow, okay, get ready, if you will, for the message. But even the act of singing itself, as we sing about the deep truths of God, God uses these songs to do something in our hearts. I don't know about you, but many times I've walked into the sanctuary, even as a pastor, not ready, not ready to hear the word, and certainly not ready to Partake of the table. But it's a song, a line. Maybe Andrew's singing. And it sticks. It transforms my heart and opens my heart to the Lord in ways that even scripture reading sometimes cannot. Ever since the first recorded song in Exodus chapter 15, God gave us an extensive playlist of songs, different songs for different occasions. Songs to celebrate, songs to lament, songs to remember, songs to look ahead in anticipation. And all of these songs in the book of Psalms are marked by different inscriptions at the beginning of the psalm. But Psalm 98 is the only psalm with a generic title. It simply reads, a psalm. No context, no genre, no instrument to be played with or accompanied by. 
And I think the genericness of the psalm tells us something. That this psalm, or this song, is an everyday psalm. One worth revisiting all the time. We don't need a special occasion. We don't need to be good at some sort of instrument. We can pull this one out and sing it to the Lord. And by doing so, it will do two things for us. One, it will help us to recount all the things that God has done. To be grateful for all the things, big and small, that God has done in our lives, in our community, in this church. So that we stand in all of his grace for us. But at the same time, it helps us to look forward. To know that the best is yet to come. And the greatest act is one that awaits us when Christ returns. And it aligns our hearts in a way that regardless of where we are today, where we find ourselves in, what we have or what we don't have, we can always look to that one great day where this song will take on a whole new meaning and we will sing it the way it was always meant to be sung. We're going to use verse 1 as an outline for us and answer two questions. One, what? What are we to do? And two, how do we do it? So first, what? The psalmist tells us in verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song. In an age where human emotion is deified, it seems odd that the Bible commands us to praise. Doesn't it? To praise something assumes that we have to be in a certain mood, does it not? But the Bible doesn't shy away from commanding us to praise God, to sing a new song. Now, it feels artificial and even really inauthentic, but Bible calls us to worship. As a fairly new Christian, C.S. Lewis couldn't get past this. He found this command, this very command to praise God, distressing and even stumbling. He writes in reflections on the Psalms that as he pondered upon this command, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his followers, threatened to appear in his mind. And perhaps even as we read through Psalm 98 and listen to the command to praise God, and those of you finding yourself in a difficult situation, you're wondering the same thing. How can I, with everything going on in my life, where I am today, praise God? All this changed, however, when C.S. Lewis considered the idea of admiration. And Justin Taylor's article in C.S. Lewis is helpful here. Lewis operates on the premise that a person or an object is worthy of admiration in the sense that admiration is the correct, adequate, and appropriate response to the person or the thing, and that failing to admire it means we have missed something of great value. And Lewis applies this logic to God and argues that God is that great object to admire simply for having entered the world and not to appreciate him is to have lost the greatest experience and in the end to have lost it all. And in this exercise, Lewis discovered that the psalmist in imploring us to worship God was simply doing what all of us do when we enjoy and worship something we break out in spontaneous praise. In fact, he goes on to say that the expression, the praise itself, completes our enjoyment 
of the person or that thing. And we do this all the time, do we not? With lesser things. With an adorable two babies that were up here today, I, I saw many of you praising. Ooh, ah, oh my gosh. Can you believe that's actually a person? <laughs> we do that with food. When we eat something that's amazing, we can't help but to express our praise and say, this is amazing. And then we would share it, oftentimes forcing the other person to eat it. And most recently, when the buzzer went off and the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup, this whole city exploded in praise. Even those of us who are Fairweather fans, we, we jumped on that bandwagon pretty quick, didn't we? It's like, touchdown! We won! And I want you to notice here in Psalm 98, the command to praise God is unqualified. It's unconditioned. The psalmist doesn't go into all the details of why you should praise God as in, look, you're, you're doing well. You're doing well. Look, last night was great. You have a ton of friends and family members who care for you. Everything at work, it seems to be going well. No, he doesn't go into and qualify why we ought to praise God. God, in his very being, he is worthy of all of our praise. Amen? God, in his very nature, in his beauty and glory, is worthy of all of our praise. And that is enough reason for us to lift up our heads and hearts to offer him praise. And as we worship, something unique takes place. Psalm 22, verse 3 says, God is enthroned in the praises of Israel, and his presence is not static. He inhabits the praise of his people, yes, to receive our worship. But there's something else going on as we sing, as we worship. He, as he receives our worship, he responds by pouring himself out to us. That's what it means when the psalmist in Psalm 22 reminds us that our praise doesn't simply hit the ceiling, come back down, but it's received and taken up to the very throne room of God, where then he, delighting in the praise of his people, his children, he pours out his heart himself to us. Elsewhere, the Bible says, he rejoices over us with singing and dancing. And it's this picture of this great chorus where we sing a line and God then sings back to us another line. And it's this iteration of us praising God and God giving himself through a song to us. In other words, worship is nothing short of covenant renewal, the reenactment of the promise, I will be their God and they will be my people until that day, our faith becomes sight. We keep on singing the song, reminding God and ourselves whose we are and who we are. To say, God, I am committed to you. And God then sings back, I am committed to you. We say, God, I want to live for you. God then says, I have given you everything so that you can live for me. 
as we reaffirm our love and commitment to one another, certainly God receives all that and he sings over us. And I really think if we as God's people stop singing the song of grace, we will lose our way. And that's why we need to sing and sing often to remember, to remember who we are and whose we are. One day, we will sing a new song to our God. And I believe in heaven, we will all sound like Andrew Russell. (laughs) But until then, we keep on singing. And our praise, often on this side of heaven, will be imperfect. It'll be messy. Or as C.S. Lewis said, it's basically tuning our instruments and getting ourselves ready for the great concert to come. My daughter, uh, who's a musical one, I guess, out of the two girls, brought home a violin, and I knew we were in for it. And, uh, (laughs) you know, practice is hard enough, but when I tell her to tune our instrument, it's like 30 minutes of, I don't know what that is. (laughs) The note is everywhere, and after 30 minutes of trying, you know, I hear... Basically a cat dying upstairs. (laughs) And often I think our praise, let's be honest, it's not much more than that, is it? But you know what's good in all this? God is a good God. I, I picture him pulling up a chair, sitting with us, cheering us on. You almost had that. Is that that song? That sounds great when he fully knows that it's not. (laughs) And that's the hope that we have. That our God takes great delight in our imperfect worship. That he rejoices over us. That he cheers us on. Until one day we can sing that perfect song. When glory is before us. So that's what we're called to do. But how do we do it? How do we worship like this? How do we praise like this? Especially when life has a way of throwing us curveballs. We all have lived long enough to know that life never goes as planned. And it's hard sometimes, isn't it? Even on our best days, it's hard. All you have to do is listen to the news or read the headlines, and you know that we're in a fallen world. And in the moments, the quiet moments when you listen to your heart, sometimes you know you're very broken. I know I am. And it scares the heck out of me. How can I praise God in such a way? Am I left to my own devices? Am I left to my own strength to muster up gratitude? to come in here every Sunday to somehow offer up praise that's worthy of our God, to sit before the word Monday morning to somehow guilt myself enough so that I can squeeze out something that's worthy of our God. Certainly not. God has given us all the reasons for worship. So let's go to our second and final point. How do we do it? Psalmist reminds us God has done Marvelous things. Verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Why? 
for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. In a similar imagery back in Isaiah 52 verse 10, this is what we read. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Or to use a more current vernacular, God basically rolled up his sleeves and went to work to accomplish the very thing Israel could not, which is to be a light to the Gentile nation and to bless all peoples on earth. Israel fumbled through at this at best. And God basically says, move aside, nice try, but I'll finish it. I'll take it from here. Every year at our session retreat, we go to uh, Elder Tom Carpenter's house. And part of our session retreat is to do some work on the farm. And, uh, you know, it's very humbling. (laughs) I'll just say that. It's humbling. Uh, Basically, this time around, Tom uh, said, hey, there are about five or six things that need to be done. And uh, he was listing them off. And uh, one of the things that he said was uh, to break the concrete slab. And it will take about 20 minutes, one person. I thought 20 minutes is better than 40 minutes. And uh, so I said, here, sign me up. I'll do it. So I get my hammer and I uh, walk around to the back of his farmhouse. And I see what lies before me is like a football field. I mean, this, this concrete slab was not this little thing. <laughs> I mean, it was huge. And uh, in my mind, I'm thinking, this is more than 20 minutes. And on top of that, it's sitting on grass, meaning all the impact that should be breaking this concrete slab, it's going to be absorbed by the ground. Like, it's impossible to break this thing. So I thought, okay, here's a chance to prove to myself, okay, what a man I am. (laughs) So, man, I went at it. And for about three minutes, I... (laughs) I gave him my best, and I was literally just humbled because at the end of my, like, just me pouring myself out, I had, like, three dents on that concrete slab. <laughs> and at that moment, I knew I, I couldn't do it alone, so I, I called Reverend Dr. Irwin Ince. You know he does CrossFit, right? The man is twice my size and four times my strength. And so I said, Dr. Ince, uh, can, can you come and, and give me a hand? And uh, I basically said, hey, here's what we need to do. Can you help me? So he's like, hey, give me the hammer. And he went at it for about five minutes. And I was so encouraged, so encouraged. Because after five minutes, he had nothing but four dents. (laughs) And I was like, good, it's not just me. And uh, we're like, oh, man, this is impossible. So we suckered Russ into it. Uh, we said, hey, Russ, man, didn't you grow up in Pennsylvania? You're like, you, you should be good at this stuff. So why don't you come and help us out? And, and Russ, you know, he's basically t- talking about all the glory days of growing up on the farm. And how his granddaddy used to do this sort of stuff. And, and we're like, okay, shut up and just go to work. And uh, a- after three minutes of talking, he realized he can't do this either. And that's when we called Yancey. That's when I realized that all men are not created equal. You got gym weightlifting strong, and then you got country strong. You know what I mean? Do you know the difference? You got a guy that can bench about 300 pounds, but then you got a guy who grew up on the farm. They're very different strengths, if you will. And so, uh, you know, Yancey rose up, and we explained to him what we're trying to do. Obviously, you know, we broke some pieces. It's not like, you know, we had few dents only. 
And uh, we said, hey, you know, can you help us finish this? And boy, he went at it. I mean, he, he was talking to us the whole time, you know. Uh, he didn't break a sweat, I don't think, and he just crushed that thing. I mean, <laughs> and I was thinking, man, like this guy, like I don't know what he did growing up in Georgia, but man, he, he did something right. And, and, and as I was reflecting on this psalm, I realized, you know what? Yancey did what the rest of us could not do. And God, in a similar way, could not, he did what none of us could do. Even in our best efforts, we fall short. We bring our best, and we think it's good enough. But not against a concrete slab. We need someone else, a better Savior. This psalm, which mirrors Exodus 15, Miriam's song, recalls how with skill and strength God accomplished this marvelous thing, this wonderful thing, on a grand scale, and the nations heard about it. Egyptian priests recognized the plagues as the finger of God, and Rahab heard detailed accounts of God's mighty deeds and came to faith, and terror fell on the land in Canaan, really, among all the inhabitants. This and all the stories of deliverance uh, holds intention, God's mercy and justice. In fact, the Bible says God's mercy is shown through justice. Mercy does not negate justice. In fact, anything less than a fully satisfied mercy and justice is evil. And we see this most clearly at the cross where God's mercy and wrath were on full display. That God, out of great love for us, would punish his son. And Christ would become sin for us. So that through his death and resurrection, we might know the Father's love. And it's not surprising that one of the instruments listed in verse 6 is a trumpet. An instrument commonly associated with judgment. We see this as God... Judge Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, it began with the blast of the trumpets. And again, as, as God judged Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 4, it was such a common association that the Feast of Trumpets, one of the three main festivals commanded by God, came to celebrate not only all the great works that God has done in the past, but the final victory of God that awaits the people of God when he will return to right all wrongs and bring about true justice, and mercy on earth. You see, God has done marvelous things. He delivered Egypt. He rescued Israel time and time again. We read about them in the book of Judges. But the best is yet to come. You see, all this that the Old Testament people of God celebrated and sang about really were just nothing but sneak previews, a dress rehearsal, if you will, of the real thing that was to come. Because verse 9 points us to something that awaits us. The psalmist says, Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalmist looks back and recounts God's mighty deeds, but he does not end there. He points us forward to a greater reality, a future day, a greater salvation that awaits us. 
to say that God will do this again. The trumpets will sound again and bring the Feast of Trumpets to its fullest consummation, the final and complete victory of God over sin and death. And it won't be just Canaan. But the ends of the earth will see the salvation of the Lord. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And how do we know this? How do we know that this this day awaits us? Because of his love and faithfulness, as verse 3 mentions. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel and his hesed love. Steadfast love is our hope. Just as God remembered and acted, He will remember and He will act again. And on that day, He will remove the oppression of evil once and for all. The bondage of sin will be no more and the slavery to corruption will be gone and He will restore the glories of Eden once again. And we look ahead to this day, this glorious day, not with fear, not with shame, not with guilt, but with hope. With great hope because God's hands and arms have worked a better salvation for us. What God's people saw in the book of Exodus as he stretched out his arm to deliver Israel from Egypt was a foreshadowing of God stretching his hands and arms yet again on the cross where he would display once and for all the full extent not only of God's power but his love and mercy for us. And it is that very love and mercy that was displayed on the cross that is still in play today. And even as we look ahead to that day and every day in between, we can face it with great hope knowing that God who knows is committed to us. That he is forming us into the likeness of his son. And he is orchestrating all things to that glorious end. And so with all the pains and the struggles that we have. With all the mundane and indifferent. What was that type of days? God says, I got you. Nothing is ever wasted. But all of those things. The little pieces of the Legos. And he's putting them together. And he's forming in us the glory of Christ. And even now, Christ at the right hand of God reminds the Father. You know, we look at ourselves. at some of the things that we do and we surprise ourselves, do we not? We thought, surely not I. I would never do that. No, no, that's not me. But then we find ourselves having done that. And we look at that and we question everything. And Jesus looks at that and says, no, 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 I pay for that. I pay for that. I bore that on the cross. So you don't have to carry that. We look ahead to the future And we wonder, how, who, what? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I secure that. You don't know it yet, but you'll see. 
we have a better advocate, a better savior, a blood more righteous than the blood of Abel that speaks on our behalf to remind the father, not that he forgets, but Jesus reminds the father of all that he accomplished for us on the cross and the empty tomb. So even in our worst day, the Father is reminded that you and I, we are more than conquerors. We need to be reminded of that sometimes too. Even in our worst day, the Father is reminded that we have been raised and seated with Christ at the right hand of God the Father. That we reign with Christ even now. Even in our worst day, the Father is reminded that we are His, His beloved, His sons and daughters, with all the privileges and the blessing heaven can afford. One day we will sing that song perfectly, better than Andrew can. But in the meantime, we keep on singing singing the song of salvation with great hope that God, who formed us, remembers us, and he is committed to us. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that you not only command us to sing a new song, but you have given us every reason to sing. Thank you for the gospel in Christ. Thank you that you rejoice over us, that you have a new song for us every day. Indeed, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And I think they come by way of song every morning. Thank you that you delight in us, even when we cannot delight in ourselves. Thank you for this gospel truth. In Christ's name, amen.